are looking tonight at the final play, the decisive play. Here we see God killing the firstborn of the Egyptians. As Exodus 11, 4 and 5 says, Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And here in this final plague, we see again what we have seen earlier in the Ten Plagues narrative. Look at verse 7 of Exodus chapter 11. But not a dog shall growl against the people, against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now we've already established in weeks gone by that the basis of the distinction that God makes between the Egyptians and the Israelites, between those who are his people and those who are not his people, both here at this juncture of redemptive history and at any point in redemptive history, the distinction that God makes between those who are his people and those who are not his people is not the merit of his people. Particularly in this case, it is not the merit of the Israelites, for they are sinners too. It's not their impressiveness as a people, for they are a small and unimpressive people group. This is all in Deuteronomy 7 and 9, which again, I would remind you, we covered in recent weeks. So, if the Israelites are not an impressive people, if there's nothing in them to distinguish them from the Egyptians, if they are sinners too, how is it fair, how is it just, that God kills the firstborn of the Egyptians but withholds his hand from the Israelites. Let's frame the issue more precisely. God is not giving the Egyptians something that they don't deserve. Rather, God is withholding from the Israelites something that they do deserve. They are sinners too. If God had struck down the firstborn of all the people, Egyptians and Israelites alike, who could accuse God of injustice? In fact, if God had struck down all the people, and not just the firstborn of the Egyptians and the Israelites alike, who could accuse God of injustice? Let's take that a step, a step further. I just about lost my pulpit here. Let's take that a step further. If God killed everyone in the world and sent them all to hell for their sins, who could accuse God of injustice? The problem in this passage, as it pertains to the justice of God, is not in his killing of the Egyptians firstborn, but in the sparing of the Israelite firstborn. When the destined day of reckoning comes upon the land of Egypt, and the Lord goes through the land to punish sin, hard-heartedness. How can God justly pass over the Israelites? So I ask again, how is it fair, how is it just, that God kills the firstborn of the Egyptians, but spares the Israelite firstborn? And more broadly, how is it fair 
How is it just for God to pass over any sinners instead of giving us what our sins deserve? We understand in the case of unbelievers that God does not spare them punishment, but merely defers it to a later time when they suffer for their sins in hell. And it's easy enough for us to see the justice of God in merely deferring punishment. So that's not really problematic for us. However, in the case of believers, God does not punish us directly for our sins. He passes over us. How is this fair? How is this just? Could not the man or the woman in hell look up, so to speak, and ask, well, what about him? What about her? Why do I have to suffer for my sin while God passed over him? Or while God passed over her and did not punish him or her as their sins deserved? What we see in this tenth plague is a paradigm for how God the manner in which God justly passes over those whom he chooses not to punish. Let's explore first the, this first Passover described in Exodus 11 and 12 before we move to that broader principle. First, look at what God threatens. Again, in 11, 4-7, he says, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will there ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So, it is God's declared intention not to kill the firstborn of the Israelites. God front loads that. He tells everybody up front, I'm not going to kill the firstborn of the Israelites. However, there is a necessary middle step before God actually passes over the Israelites. So he declares that it is his intention to pass them over, but there's also this necessary middle step before what God has declared actually comes to pass, before God actually passes over them, which he has said he's going to do, there is a necessary middle step. Look at chapter 12 now, and verse 7. In the midst of varied instructions about the Passover event, the Israelites are instructed to take some of the blood, that is of the lamb that they were preparing to eat, and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses. And in 12, 12 and 13, we see the rationale for this. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. 
The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Again in verse 23, we see the same thing repeated. The Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Listen, the destroyer is passing through all the land of Egypt, including Goshen. And his sole concern is whether or not a lamb has been slain in the place of his intended target. That will be the way in which he will distinguish between those whom he will kill and those whom he will pass over. Either the firstborn will die in the land of Egypt or in the land of Goshen. Either the firstborn will die or a lamb will take his place. This is the central aspect of the tenth plague. The aspect of plundering the Egyptians, which is also fairly front and center here, is simply a culmination of this theme that God's been humbling the Egyptians, God's been demonstrating his power, and utterly overwhelming the Egyptians. He's utterly overwhelmed their gods, their sorcerers. He's overwhelmed all the advisors of Pharaoh so that they're like, Pharaoh, can't you see that the land is ruined? Let these people go. He's utterly been, he's been taking them deeper and deeper and deeper into the deep end, so to speak, and drowning them more and more in his might and his power and the demonstration of who he is, humbling them. This aspect of plundering the Egyptians is simply the culmination of that theme. It's showing how the Egyptians, who were once utterly hard-hearted toward the Israelites, they enslaved them, they didn't care about them, they didn't want their best interests. They would have laughed in the first place if the Israelites asked for a day off. Pharaoh was completely opposed to letting them go. They, the Egyptians were bent on keeping everybody in subjection, but now they have been so thoroughly humbled by God that now they are willing to pay the Israelites to leave. That's the significance of this asking them for gold and silver and jewelry and so forth and then getting it on their way out. It just goes to show just how utterly overwhelmed these people have been by God. So that's not actually the central aspect of the tenth plague. That's just a culmination of a theme that has already been introduced. The central aspect of the tenth plague is that when the de day of reckoning comes, only those who have taken shelter behind the blood of a lamb who has been slain will be spared. That is what is unique to the tenth plague. That is what is uniquely being revealed here in this tenth and culminating plague. In other words, God has been teaching all kinds of things throughout the first nine plagues. But ultimately, when things come to a head, ultimately what he is teaching the Israelites and the Egyptians and everybody who reads this record 
on through the ages, ultimately what God is focusing on as he brings everything to a culmination is that when the day of reckoning comes, either the intended target will die or a lamb will die in its place. That's what's happening here in this first Passover. Let's consider now what the Passover ultimately points to. And this shouldn't be hard. I can't help but think that this would have made the highlight reel, so to speak. When Jesus opened up to the disciples on the road to Emmaus in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Well, obviously Jesus didn't read everything from Genesis to Malachi with those guys as they walked that couple of miles between Jerusalem and Emmaus. So he would have had to summarize and he would have to select certain texts. And this is one of the clearest Old Testament types of the work of Christ. I want to speak to the situation of unbelievers for a moment. If there's anyone watching online who's not yet trusting in Christ, even the children who are here among us, or any unbelievers who may hear this, God's wrath is coming fully and finally for you, as it came fully and finally upon Egypt in the 10th plague. The warnings will be over. The gradual destruction of your idols will be over. You will be left with nothing of that which you hoped in. As the servants of Pharaoh exclaimed to him, do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So one day you will come to understand that you are ruined. And the only hope for you will be to hope in something else than what you have hoped in all. A land more slain. As the Lord came in wrath upon Egypt and Goshen, Egypt and Goshen, and yet passed over all who took shelter behind the blood of a lamb, so the Lord continues to pass over all who take shelter behind the blood of a lamb. But we're no longer speaking about the ruminant, the woolly, bleating thing. All of the lambs slain from the foundation of the world in the worship of Yahweh were simply previews, movie trailers, if you like, for the lamb who is coming to take away the sin of the world. And who is he? When John saw Jesus coming, he exclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember I posed to you at the beginning a series of related questions. How is it fair? How is it just that God kills the firstborn of the Egyptians but withholds his hand from the Israelites? And more broadly, how is it fair, how is it just for God to pass over any sinners 
instead of giving us what our sins deserve. And I said to you that the tenth plague provides a paradigm for how God justly passes over those whom he chooses not to punish. We learn from the tenth plague the principle that atonement is a necessity if God is to make a just distinction between his people and others. Now, admittedly, if, if God had simply distinguished the Israelites from the Egyptians, in this case, with respect to this temporal punishment, and yet eventually punished those from among the Egyptians and from among the Israelites, who were unbelievers, later in hell, then there would be no real justice issue. But if God simply passed over believers... Old Testament and New Testament alike, without ever punishing their sin, there would be an issue of injustice. God cannot pour out his wrath on one person and claim that it's justice, that it's what they deserve, that it's their wages being paid out to them. God can't do that in one breath and then simply pass over another without punishing them for their sin, without paying them their wages. Otherwise, that's an injustice issue. It's a double standard. If punishment is justice, and if God is just, then God must punish and it must be served in every case, this punishment, which is justice. Or it is injustice. And it is this principle that God is highlighting by requiring his people in this case, in Exodus 11 and 12, to take shelter behind the blood of a substitute. God wants his people to understand his mercy. God wants his people to understand that to take refuge in Yahweh is safe. In fact, it's the only safe option. God wants his people to understand that you may be spared. But God wants his people to understand that it's not going to be at the expense of his justice. God's mercy is not unjust, akin to a grandparent doting on a misbehaving grandchild. Ignoring the misbehavior, ignoring the sin, pretending it never happened, looking through rose-colored glasses. Rather, God's mercy and justice inform one another and complement one another throughout the biblical storyline as each reveals an aspect of who God is. So God essentially says, or he implies really, you Israelites really and truly deserve to have your firstborn killed as well. That's why the Lord passes not only through the land of Egypt where the Egyptians dwell, but through that region of Egypt called Goshen where the Israelites dwell as well. The destroyer is there too. What's the implication of that? Really and truly, you ought to have your firstborns killed as well. 
but I wish to spare you. Therefore, a substitute must die in your place. Let a lamb without blemish die in your place. Hide yourself behind its blood, and I will pass over you, and not visit the wrath you deserve upon you, having reckoned the lamb to have borne it in your place. This is what God is implying. This is what this picture means in Exodus 11 and 12. God is not just doing a random thing. Neither is God hungry the way that some pagan gods supposedly get hungry and need you to bring food to their temples. There's meaning to this. And we put it together. We understand the meaning when we put together the storyline of the Bible. God is teaching that the destroyer passes by every household. Passes by every individual and looks to see has there been a lamb slain in the place of my intended target or not? That is the basis upon which God can make a just distinction between those upon whom he visits his wrath and those whom he passes over. Has a lamb been slain in the place of the intended target of wrath? Was the atonement of Christ Jesus necessary, strictly speaking? If it was merely to show God's love, if the cross was merely to show God's love, or if the cross was merely to demonstrate the obedience, the sort of obedience that men should offer up to God, that they should be willing to die in obedience to God. If, this, if these sorts of things, which some purport are the meaning of the cross, if these sorts of things are fundamentally what all that was going on at the cross, then no, it was not necessary. Surely God could have shown his love in some other way. Surely there could have been some other example. But what happened at the cross was that Jesus bore the wrath that our sins deserved. What happened at the cross was that a lamb was slain so that God might justly pass over those people whom he wishes to spare from his wrath. If God is to justly unpardon, pardon me, if God is to justly pardon the ungodly, then yes, the cross was necessary. John Murray calls the cross a consequent absolute necessity. And what he means by that is if God did not intend to pardon, if God did not intend to pass over, then the cross was unnecessary. The Lord did not have to save. There does not have to be a gospel. 
And so in that sense, the cross is unnecessary. But given that God wishes to save, given that God intends to pass over his people, there is then a necessary middle step before God actually does that which he intends. Just as it was in the tenth plague, God declared, God decreed that he was going to pass over the Israelite houses. But before he actually did pass over the Israelite houses, there was a necessary middle step. A lamb had to be slain in the place of those who were otherwise to die. And so it is with the thing to which the Passover, that first Passover points. God intends to pass over those who trust in his mercy and his grace and his provision for our salvation in his gospel. God intends to pass over us and not visit his wrath upon us. But before he actually goes ahead and does that, which he has decreed, before he actually goes ahead and does that, which he has declared he intends to do, there is a necessary middle step. A lamb must be slain in the place of those who are otherwise to die. This is the only way that God can justly pass over you, me, anyone. Atonement, the atonement of Christ Jesus that he offered up on the cross, bearing the wrath of God in our place, dying the death that we deserved to die with the wrath of God poured out upon him in sufficient measure for our sins. That atonement is a necessity if God is to make a just distinction between his people and others. And so as the Israelites now are plundering the Egyptians and beginning their journey out of Egypt, they have this picture in their minds of killing this lamb, spreading the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel. And they were warned to stay inside all night because the destroyer was out there. And it was this blood that spared them. Obviously there was more obscurity in terms of what this would have meant to them than there is for us having had more revelation by this juncture in redemptive history. But surely the thoughtful Israelite would have said the destroyer was on my street. The destroyer came down my gap. It wasn't therefore a geographical distinction. It wasn't therefore an ethnic distinction. If this blood wasn't here, surely he would have entered our house and done the same. We are saved by the blood of the Lamb. And as God revealed more and more throughout their wilderness wanderings and gave them the Torah by the pen of Moses, which at this time had not yet been recorded, they would have come to understand more and more 
and all the types and shadows that are present even in earlier redemption, in Genesis, earlier redemptive history, through the promises that have been made, including way back in Genesis 3, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, through the sacrificial system which was later to be instituted, they would come to understand it's not because of anything in us that the Lord has shown us mercy. It's not because of anything in us that the Lord has passed over us. It's because of the blood of the Lamb. And of course, as Hebrews tells us, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And it's evident that they did not take away sin because they kept being offered over and over. So the thoughtful Israelites, seeing all of this stuff, would have had occasion to think there must be a lamb coming. One day, all of this is pointing towards something else. One day, God will provide a lamb. Just as he provided on Mount Moriah with Abraham and Isaac, our fathers. One day, God will provide a lamb. We trust in the mercy of Yahweh and in his provision of a lamb in order that it might justly pass over us. It's the same gospel that we believe today, isn't it? Less clarity, sure, I grant that, but substantially and fundamentally it's the same. This is what God has been driving at all along throughout redemptive history in all the ways he's been dealing with his people. All the promises, all the types, all the shadows, all the pictures, all the previews testifying to us of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. It is by faith in Him, by trusting Him, by hiding behind the blood of the Lamb, that we find that God does that which He intends for His people and passes over us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God, who was for sinners slain.